It's time. We are not called to be nice. Sandy Rios. Welcome, Sandy. Thanks for being here. We are often called to be confrontational. And here with me in D.C. is Fox News contributor Sandy Rios. You and you still like me or you, or you don't like me, James? Are you okay? You all right? <laughs> I'm a musician. I can't help it. Uh, longtime Fox News contributor Sandy Rios, thanks very much for being with us. We have, I think it's four to one youth in America wants gay marriage. Our kids are the product of public schools. No wonder they poll the way they do. It's time to stand up or we're going to lose everything we have. Director of Governmental Affairs for the American Family Association. Step up, speak up, say something, do something. This isn't a game. This is real life. Cindy Rios is with the American Family Association. A pro-life radio talk show host. Some things are worth fighting for. Some you know, liberal think tank this comes from. But here's what Wall Street's saying. Goldman Sachs, quote, vaccinations will have a positive impact on employment. It means less spread of COVID-19, which will help people return to work. Moody's and Wall Street. Vaccination means fewer infections, hospitalizations, and death. In turn, it means a stronger economy. One economist called vaccine requirements, and I quote, the single most powerful, I didn't say single, the most powerful economic stimulus ever enacted, end of quote. Third point I'd like to make. The report shows that vaccination requirements have broad public support. So there you go. President Joe Biden has said it. It must be true. These uh, vaccine mandates, uh, the forcing of our will against our will, the loss of our freedoms, this is good for us. It's good economically. It's going to create jobs. It's going to make the workplace safe. Nothing to see here. Problem is, over the weekend, Southwest canceled more than 1,000 flights. And uh, they say, well, it was just, you know, weather or something. Uh, But other people are saying, no, it's because the Southwest Airlines Pilot Association on Friday leveled a lawsuit at the company against the mandate uh, that they have to be vaccinated by, fully vaccinated by December 8th. And so they said, no, we're not doing it. And so they sort of was a standoff. But, of course, Southwest said it had nothing to do with that. But, of course, if it didn't have anything to do with that, why did the other airlines because they have the same weather when they fly their planes, not shut down, you know, a thousand flights or uh, five hundred flights, but no. So, but but it's really remember the mandates are good for business. Joe Biden just told you it's good for business, and tell the Amtrak trains because they um, let's see, uh, several of them were canceled over the weekend because of unforeseen crew issues. We can't imagine what those unforeseen crew issues were, but Amtrak is also suffering uh, from people walking or not showing up for their job. In Seattle, uh, they're looking to fire 40% of their police force over the COVID-19 vaccine mandate. But remember, uh, COVID mandates are good for the economy and good for jobs. Joe Biden has said so. United Airlines has just fired hundreds of employees on the spot for not getting the vaccination. Hundreds of employees on the spot have been fired from United Airlines, and I'm sure that will not have any effect on the economy, on spending, on unemployment. Uh, won't have any effect on United Airlines. Uh, it'll be good for them. It'll be good for them. It'll be safer. And so uh, nothing to see here. And I could go on and on, but I just had to make that point that your president, it continues to be... Um, I would like to say he's deluded, but I actually just think he's a liar because he has been a liar all the years I've followed him. So I don't know what's different. He just maybe gets confused with his words sometimes, but really his basic character has not changed. So 
We do have other situations where people who are employed are um, going through some horrible things because of these mandates, but I'm sure that they're good for them. I'm sure going through these things are very good for them, like the New Jersey teacher who's saying that her stomach was churning following the union demand uh, to log students' vaccination status. We have a clip of her talking about what happened. Let's listen. This is clip two. A group of New Jersey teachers are blasting their union after being asked to log conversations with parents about the COVID vaccine. They were even asked to upload parents' vaccination status into an app, which was created by Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's campaign team. And they were promised gift cards for the app's most active users. New Jersey public school teacher Jennifer Mess joins us now to react. Jennifer, thank you for being with us this morning. Just take, would you please, just take me behind the scenes. How did this work? You've got this app, you've got your union, you've got this encouragement, and you've got what amounts to essentially spying on your students and their families. How did this work? Well, we received an email and a lot of us, uh, you know, joined the meeting because we wanted to see what it was about. Really, we were very interested in why we were getting this type of training, what they called training. And you watched it and it was literally talking you through scenes where, where you're manipulating parents and students. And as educators, that is completely against what we do. So... The, the crazy thing is districts didn't even know this was happening. It's behind, it was behind everyone's backs. And nowhere was it spoken about that it was anything from AOC's campaign. What was the stated justification for using you, using t- teachers in either, I don't know, yeah, I do know, a political effort here? Was it, was it as it was explained to you, to participate in some kind of data mining? I'm sure that's not the case. Was it to encourage people to get the vaccine? What were you told about why you were doing this? Well, the training obviously was not presented to be political. It was very much with you as a teacher. You have a relationship with students and parents. Therefore, you should help them and encourage them to get information. And they literally spoke about different techniques on how to engage in that conversation. And while you watch this training, your your stomach is turning because you're like, you want to use my rapport with parents and students to coerce them into doing what the government is telling us to do. It feels like they want us to become indoctrination camps instead of educational, uh, you know, curriculum providing, you know, we want to provide curriculum. We want to provide that, that love and care for our students. And instead they want us to push an agenda. And that's what it felt like. Yeah. Okay. So that's a New Jersey school teacher, Jennifer Miss. Uh, And it it looks like those, uh, that, uh, that app, that encouragement came from the American Federation of Teachers, the National Education Association, all of them telling teachers to spy on their students to get the vaccine status of their parents, get the vaccine status of the kids, and record it, but don't tell them you're doing it. Okay, so that's what that was all about. And then we have uh, a student out in Laramie, Wyoming, who's uh, going her own, uh, having her own battle. This is a girl, uh, she's, a, she's 16 years old, she's a straight-A student. She's in advanced placement classes. She has the lead role in the school play. Uh, she's an exemplary student, and she is uh, refusing to wear a mask. And she's, you know, uh, not not a, a rebellious girl. She has a, you know, she's got a great record. Uh, she says, um, "I get cussed out a lot. People have called me names. Nobody has physically harmed me, but some of my best friends now won't talk to me." 
And she said the bullying doesn't just come from students. She said the discrimination from the teachers is just absurd. I had one teacher who tried to force a mask onto my face. And so um, what happened was that the school then closed down the entire school uh, and brought the police in to arrest her. They handcuffed her and carried her and, you know, took her away. And they closed down the school. So she's been shunned, and she's going to lose her spot in the school play. She's probably going to be expelled. Uh, and they are actually reconsidering that mask mandate October the 15th, I think it is. But there's a kid with a lot of courage. And it's going to take that kind of thing. If we are going to push back on this, it's going to take that kind of thing. And she's not the only one with courage. Uh, here's another guy. This is a doctor, a psychiatrist, who is a professor at the University of California, Irvine. He has an incredible resume. All the things that he does there at the university, he's, he writes, he's gotten all kinds of awards. He's a professor of psychiatry uh, at the at Irvine uh, University of California, Irvine School of Medicine. Uh, and he's not an anti-vaxxer, it's just that he got COVID and he has antibodies. And he's presented those tests, but they don't care. They want him to be vaccinated. And he says, I don't want to be vaccinated. I'm not in danger of getting the disease and I don't want to take those chemicals in my body uh, when it's not necessary. But that's not enough for the school. So now he's been suspended. Um, he's, uh, let's see, he's on investigatory leave with pay, but he's not allowed to perform any work at the university. He's not to be present on the premises, just all these draconian rules. And this is one of their lead psychiatrists and one of their lead professors, but boy, they, they're relentless. And, uh, they they seem intent on firing him, uh, just because he is speaking up about natural immunity. So that's another, uh, it's, it's Aaron Cariarty. Cariotti, Dr. Aaron Cariotti. That's his name, and that's at UCLA. So another courageous person. How many? How many are there? So many. There are so many standing up. It's just pretty amazing, and they're paying such a price. That's not amazing. That's sickening. Uh, but according to Joe Biden, it's helping us. It's helping the economy cheer up. It's all going to be well. And then there's the federal ju- judge. It was a George W. Bush appointee. Speaking of natural immunity, Jana Norris filed a lawsuit against Michigan State University because she's had COVID. She has natural immunity. Uh, She has proof of that. And so she was asking for an exemption from the vaccine, which, by the way, as I understand it, is more dangerous to people who have natural immunity. But um, no, 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 Dodge. U.S. District Judge Paul Maloney, that appointee of former President George W. Bush, has declined her lawsuit. And so uh, I don't know if she's going to file again. We hope that she'll pursue... Uh, more because this is happening all over the place. People with natural immunity, uh, which we know, you know, remember I played that clip for you of the undercover video with the Pfizer scientist just last week. Uh, James O'Keefe uh, caught the guy undercover on a camera saying that natural immunity is much more powerful than the vaccine. And then he also, then the scientist goes on to say, now I've signed a non disclosure agreement, so I can't say that publicly, but natural immunity is much stronger. A Pfizer scientist said that, but he's not allowed to say that. And then I want to go to something else uh, before we before we go to the break here. This is something that deserves a lot more conversation, but the World Economic Forum has been deeply involved in what happens with the coronavirus pandemic. And you probably know, you've heard about an event that happened in October of 2019. Uh, they, it was, uh, they met in conjunction with the Gates Foundation, And they met for event 201, and they talked about a pandemic. They talked about it. They they speculated. 
In fact, um, this was not at that event, but Dr. Fauci, who's now telling us, you know, you can go trick-or-treating. You can take your kids trick-or-treating. Uh, he grants you that permission. Just be careful. Uh, this is Dr. Fauci in 2017. Now, remember, COVID broke out of, what, 2020? January 2020? So this is uh, uh, Dr. Fauci in 2017 making a prediction that's really interesting. This is clip seven. Let's listen. The topic today is the issue of pandemic uh, preparedness. And if there's one message that I want to leave with you today based on my experience, and you'll see that in a moment, is that there is no question that there will be a challenge to the coming administration in the arena of infectious diseases, both chronic infectious diseases in the sense of already ongoing disease, and we have certainly a large burden of that, but also there will be a surprise outbreak. There will be surprise outbreak. And he's talking about in this administration, President Trump had just been elected. There will be a surprise outbreak. It's such a surprise. How come he knew about it? I wonder, how did Dr. Fauci know that there'd be a surprise outbreak of a virus uh, sometime during the Trump administration? But that's exactly what he said in that presentation. So I want you to hear now, some of you have heard some of this, some of this is new. Michael Spector of The New Yorker, this is Dr. Fauci, you'll hear him. You have Rick Bright, who's the director of BARDA, which is uh, affiliated with the Rockefeller Center. Um, and uh, they're just talking about, you know, this is now October 2019. This is before any pandemic. They're talking about maybe that surprise that was coming up. They had amazing information. This is clip six. Let's listen. Why don't we blow the system up? I mean, obviously, we can't just turn off the spigot on the system we have and then say, hey, everyone in the world should get this new vaccine we haven't given to anyone yet. But there must be some way that we grow vaccines mostly in eggs the way we did in 1947. In order to make the transition from getting out of the tried and true egg growing, which we know gives us results that can be you know, beneficial. I mean, we've done well with that to something that has to be much better. Uh, you have to prove that this works and then you've got to go through all of the clinical trials, phase ones, phase twos, phase three, and then show that this particular product is going to be good over a period of years. That alone, if it works perfectly, is going to take a decade. There might be a need or even an urgent call for uh, an entity right. of excitement out there that's completely disruptive, that's not beholden to bureaucratic strings and, and, and processes. So we really do have a problem of how the world perceives influenza, and it's going to be very difficult to change that unless you do it from within and say, I don't care what your perception is, we're going to address the problem in a disruptive way and in an iterative way, because you do need both. But it is not too crazy to think that an outbreak of an, a novel avian virus could occur in, in China somewhere. We could get the RNA sequence from that, beam it to a number of regional centers, if not local, if not even in your home at some point, and print those vaccines on a patch and self-administer. Yeah, so the board, the whole conversation is how can we get that RNA vaccine out there? How can we get, we'll have to disrupt 
the whole system. I mean, maybe a novel avian virus, like maybe bats, you think he was talking about, might break out in maybe uh, China. Uh, and maybe we could then get people, we'll disrupt the whole system, we'll upset the apple cart, and then people will, you know, take this RNA vaccine. We could even get a patch where they could give it to themselves in their own homes. What is this about? What is this about? How did Dr. Fauci know? that under the Trump administration there would be a medical outbreak of some kind of uh, uh, medical emergency. How did he know that? Just think about it as we talk about what's happening with COVID because we think the whole thing was planned. All right, I want to change the subject, and actually it's kind of delightful. Today is Columbus Day. Stay tuned. A teenage jihadist comes to Christ. Hey, it's Michael Woolworth with Bible League International, and I met young Ahmed when I visited the Middle East. His father died fighting for ISIS, his mother was an extremist, and young Ahmed was going to be a suicide bomber by killing himself and others being sold out to violent Islam. Now, his mother and siblings, they came to Christ, they prayed nonstop for his salvation, and when it came, he was beaten nearly to death by extremists. And when I caught up with him several villages over, I asked, Ahmed, what's your Bible mean to you? And he said, I can look here and see where Jesus says they'll hate you, because they hated me and where Jesus says I'm with you always. Now listen, having a Bible it meant everything to him and gave him perspective and his prayer was for believers there who need God's word to endure and persevere. And I said, Ahmed, those Bibles, they're coming. Bible League invites you to send God's word to Bibleist believers around the world in our campaign The World Needs the Word at only $5 a Bible, every gift matched. Call 800-YES-WORD 800-YES-WORD or give it sendbiblesnow.org sendbiblesnow.org org. The following are real-life stories from Trinity Debt Management. My story begins with debt, a lot of debt. I used my credit cards as a source of income. It was not a good situation. I couldn't pay my bills. The interest on the cards was really high. If you're in debt and you need help, call Trinity at 1-800-788-1813. I initially was scared to call, and immediately I felt relieved. They contacted all of our creditors, and they put us on a plan for success. Trinity will consolidate your accounts into one easy-to-manage monthly payment, reduce your interest, and possibly improve your credit score. You'll save thousands. I've been able to pay off close to $15,000. We're doing a lot better. Please pick up the phone and see how affordable and easy it is to pay off your debt. It's a godsend. We're debt-free for keeps. Call Trinity at 1-800-788-1813. That's 1-800-788-1813. Hello, Americans. I'm Todd Starnes with news and commentary next. This fall, Liberty University is celebrating 50 years of training champions for Christ. Since 1971, Liberty has been training Christ-centered men and women with the values, knowledge, and skills essential for impacting the world, a vision that continues today. The story of Liberty University is one of unwavering faith, and we invite you to be part of the next chapter. With more than 700 programs online and on campus, Liberty can help you turn your vision into a future you can be proud of. Visit liberty.edu to learn more. Again, that's liberty.edu. Jesse Hamilton prepared meals for the men of Phi Gamma Delta for about 14 years. Her presence at Louisiana State University was life-changing for many of the fraternity brothers. She eventually went on to other jobs in life, cleaning and cooking, still hard at work, even at the age of 74. Andrew Fusiati was one of the young men who ate her cooking back in the day. And when he found out Mrs. Hamilton was still on the job, he just knew an intervention was in order. So he contacted a few of his fraternity brothers, and they decided 
to pay off Mrs. Hamilton's mortgage. And on her 74th birthday, they surprised her with a catered meal and a great big check, totaling more than $50,000. All those attending were given t-shirts proclaiming Jesse Hamilton Day and hankies as well to wipe away the tears. It was an emotional scene, those grown men taking care of a sweet lady who made sure they had a home-cooked meal. I'm Todd Starnes. Don't forget to connect with Sandy Rios in the morning on Facebook or email Sandy at Sandy at AFR.net. That's Sandy at AFR.net. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. Every second Monday in October for the past 81 years, Americans have celebrated that in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. However, an ever-growing movement to celebrate the Indigenous Peoples' Day instead of Christopher Columbus, where traditional dances, clothing, and crafts are on display, is educating the public that the man is not someone to be celebrated. I think we're celebrating um, not just a man, but the ideology behind that man, um, the colonization, um, the slavery, uh, the genocide that, that, that Columbus's mission brought here. In recent years, Native Americans are seeking to replace the holiday with a day that commemorates the millions who were present before Christopher Columbus claimed to have found a new world. How can you discover if somebody was already here? We were here for tens of thousands of years with like flourishing cultures doing incredible things long, long, long before Columbus ever got here. For these Native American communities, there is one thought that unites the nearly 600 tribes, bands, nations, pueblos, rancherias, communities, and native villages. Make it right. Make it right. All right, so that's what we're hearing. Today is uh, the celebration of Columbus Day. If there's anywhere in the United States where Columbus is still celebrated, well, he's celebrated on this at this dial because... Um, we're going to kind of sort things out this morning. I've had uh, Columbus's diary for probably 20 years, which I read and loved and enjoyed his ship's log. It's just amazing. And uh, what you're hearing about Columbus, from my perspective, is not true. I'll tell you that right, right up front. But I'm not the expert on it. My next guest is the expert on it. He's one of my favorite historians. It's Bill Federer. He is a nationally known speaker. He's a best-selling author. He's the president of AmeriSearch, which is a publishing company dedicated to researching America's noble heritage. As many of you might have heard Bill's American Minute radio feature every day broadcast across America where he talks about the spiritual connection with our history. It's just great stuff. One of my favorite books that Bill has produced is America's God and Country, uh, Encyclopedia of Quotations. I think it's sold in the millions. I love it. I've used it for years on the air. Uh, he's written uh, some just terrific books all over the place about uh, history. And I always enjoy talking to him about these uh, on these special days, and I've asked him to join us this morning. Bill, thanks for joining us on this celebration today of Columbus Day. Hey, great to be with you, Sandy. Yeah, it's great to be with you, too. And I, I'm going to start this way. Okay, forgive me. I'm going to take play your role just for a second. I'm just going to read directly from Columbus's words from his log. He says, I went to sea at an early age, and there I have continued to this day. The same art inclines those who follow it to wish to know the secrets of this world. I have sailed everywhere that is navigable. Our Lord found this my desire very proper. 
He opened my understanding with his hand so that I became capable of sailing from here to the Indies, and he set fire to my will to carry this out, and with this fire, I came to your highnesses. And he's talking about Isabel and Ferdinand, the king and queen of France. Okay, with that, I set the table, Bill. And so, you know, tell us, we have to be rudimentary here. You know, you you and I have known about this for years, but tell us and people who really don't know, who was Christopher Columbus? Was he Spanish? Was he Jewish? What was his background, and what made him want to go on this voyage? Uh, well, he was Genoan, and they, Italy had city-states, so there was no concept of quote-unquote Italian. And uh, Genoa was always at war with Siena and Venice and uh, these other city-states. Um, but the situation was that Europe traded with India and China for centuries. There are Roman records of trading with India. Uh, Marco Polo in the 1200s went from Venice, Italy to China, worked for Kublai Khan, the grandson of Genghis Khan, and brought back stories of naked holy men in India, <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, fields full of cloth because they would dye yeah, indigo blue and how the uh, Chinese had burning rocks and it was coal and the Chinese had a pinata and gunpowder. And, and so Marco Polo gets back. He's captured in a battle with Venice and he's put in the, uh, a jail. Um, and he is um, there uh, where he dictates his uh, stories of going to China. And it's called Il Milliones or The Million Lies because people thought it was, like, so far out. and um, But anyway, it was a century and a half later that Columbus was born, and Columbus uh, heard these stories of Marco Polo and uh, Genghis Khan and Kublai Khan. And interestingly enough, uh, Marco Polo obviously was, was a Christian, and Marco Polo uh, gets over to China, and he talks about running into Syrian Christians, but also he said that Kublai Khan... You know, every Ramadan would bring out a Quran. Every you know Buddhist festival would bring out some holy book. But he says every you know Easter he'd uh, want um, uh, some Christian reference. And uh, he told Marco Polo to go back and um, bring some holy oil from the sepulchre in Jerusalem and bring back a hundred teachers of the Christian faith. And when Marco Polo comes back, Europe's at war. And obviously those hundred teachers of the Christian faith never made it to China, but Columbus uh, heard about this. And so in his writings, he talks about how the Grand Khan of China uh, requested these Christian teachers, but never had the Holy Father in Rome sent them. And uh, But um, the, the situation comes to a head. You had the Muslims uh, under Muhammad conquered all of North Africa, which used to be Christian, and the rightly guided caliphs. They conquer Egypt, which used to be Christian. It was evangelized by Mark. The Muslims conquer Syria, which used to be Christian, evangelized by Paul. The Muslims invade Spain and held it for 700 years until they had a reconquista and drove the Muslims out of Spain. And then the Turks convert to Islam, and there's the Seljuk Turks and the Ottoman Turks, and they invade what is today Turkey, and all seven churches mentioned in the Book of Revelation were wiped out by the Muslim Turks. Of course, the Greek Christians begged the Catholic West for help, the West sends help. is called the Crusades. When the Crusades end, the Muslims continue to invade West. And in 1453, the Muslims under Sultan uh, Mamet II conquers Constantinople. Constantinople was the biggest city in Europe. It had the largest church in Christendom. 
all right? This is before the Vatican was built, and it had a, you know, 165 feet high, 102 foot across dome, four acres of gold mosaics. It's still there. It was so well built, but the Muslims turned it into a mosque. But when Sultan Mehmet II conquers Constantinople in 1453, it ends the land trade routes to get from Europe over to India and China. This is a big deal because trade, all the spices, all these different things were coming across. And so the Europeans began to look for a sea route. And so in 1498, Vasco da Gama sails around South Africa and makes it to Goa, India. But in 1492, Columbus had convinced the king and queen of Spain, who had just finished driving the Muslims out of Spain, um, they uh, took his idea to sail west. And uh, Columbus had heard of the Irish monks, uh, St. Brendan, who there was reports where he was blown way to the west, and then seven years later came back and described this land that sounds like, you know, New England. And, and then... In the 1300s, there were some Swedish uh, Christian Vikings that went west, and, you know, you had Leif Erikson uh, earlier. Um, And then uh, in the uh, early 1400s, 1421, there's uh, a reported Chinese treasure fleet, and they had these big ships that were the size of ocean liners, and some floated west from China, some east, and um, supposedly they came along the coast of America. And when they got back to China, instead of them being praised, uh, the emperor's palace had been struck by lightning, and the Chinese emperors ruled by claiming they had a mandate from heaven. And when heaven struck his palace with lightning, um, the next emperor said that uh, uh, something he did must have offended heaven, and so he wanted to do the opposite. And so rather than celebrating the treasure fleet, this next emperor decided to let the ships rot in the harbor, and he moves all of the cities of China 30 miles inland, and it starts a, a several-century period of Chinese isolation, figuring that the previous emperor's ex- exploration had offended heaven. Um, and uh, But uh, so Columbus would have heard about these different things, and he knew there was something to the West, and uh, but finally convinced the king and queen of Spain. Interestingly enough, uh, the, everyone knew the world was round. Um, you had uh, Ptolemy, a, um, uh, an astronomer there in Egypt. Um, you had Aristophanes. You had um, different, you know, Italian uh, scholars that surmised that the Earth was round. The big question is how big around. And Columbus thought it was about five or 6,000 miles smaller than it actually is. And the differences between Arabic miles and Roman miles, uh, he was using uh, the Roman mile calculation, which were shorter when um, in actuality uh, it was um, instead of 19,000 miles around the Earth, it, in actuality it's around 24,000. Had Columbus known that, he never would have set sail because it was there's no way that you could have carried water and fresh water and food that distance. And so it was a miscalculation. Um, but then the flip side is uh, is the Native Americans. When did they get to the New World? Uh, most scholars think it was when the Bering Strait uh, was either frozen or the water level was lower, and they migrated sometime after uh, the scattering of the Tower of Babel. Um, they migrated uh, across. And, Interesting. Uh, some DNA 
Some DNA tests were done to show that people in Western Siberia and in Mongolia have the same genetic markers as American Indians with high cheekbones and straight black hair and no beards for the men. And um, so, uh, so even the American Indians were uh, coming from some other place at some point in time. Um, well, isn't that the story? Is isn't that the story? Honestly, Bill, of every every people in every land was owned by someone else at some time. It's a constant transference. I don't think maybe the Egyptians are. Maybe there's some Chinese. Maybe they were always there, or the Egyptians. But they've there's always been a transference of power. And I guess when you know we heard on that news report that was a Newsweek report that we started the show with. They talk about, um, you know, they weren't, this land wasn't discovered. We discovered it already. But they're talking, I guess the word discover means the European countries discovered a new land that they weren't aware of, right? That would be what that meant. Yes, yes. And uh, there's a couple important things. Um, in what's called Eurasia, which is Europe, Asia, and, you know, North Africa and so forth, uh, you have constant wars and captives, and there would be mixing of genetic DNA, so that if a plague swept through, people would die, but there would always be someone with a little different DNA, and they would survive. Uh, when the uh, Native American Indians were separated, again, whether it was the Bering Strait or you know floating on some boats, but nevertheless, um, they had an isolated DNA, and so when they finally came in contact with European diseases, uh, it decimated entire tribes. And, um, and But there were... Europeans that died as well of smallpox and typhoid and yellow fever and so forth, but it did have a more... Now, it, you know, there is a trade. It's called the Columbian Exchange. Uh, supposedly syphilis came from the American Indians and went back to Europe, and, uh, you know, tomatoes came from America and when they first were used in, in with uh, pewter lead plates. Uh, there's this rise of lead poisoning because the acid in the tomato paste would you know, leach the, the lead out of the plates and... So there's this Colombian exchange back and forth. Uh, but the, the one point I want to make is that um, the whole rest of the world had gone from the Stone Age to the Bronze Age to the Iron Age to making steel weapons to having gunpowder to having cannons to having massive ships that can sail the ocean to a written languages where you can accumulate knowledge and the wheel. I mean, it was like the second century BC, the Chinese invented a wheelbarrow. Yeah. So, and, Bill, um, hang on, hold that thought. Were still in the... Uh, they were still in the Stone Age, is what you were going to say, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> we have to take a break here. But, Bill, when we come back, let's pick up the actual story of Columbus and his discovery, because it is fascinating, and people don't know the story, and I want them to know it. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. Hi, this is Pastor Robert Morris. I'm often asked, how do I grow in my relationship with the Lord? How do I hear God? What is God's plan and purpose for me? I want to personally invite you to join me on Sunday mornings right here on AFR for worship and the Word. And we will discover the answer to these questions together. We'll explore the truths found in God's Word that will help you strengthen your faith and develop a more intimate relationship with Him. Find peace in God's Word. In Nahum 1.3, the Lord has His way in the whirlwind. Frequently in life, we find ourselves in a whirlwind, don't we? Really, the wording means His way prevails even over above the storms of the whirlwind. God is in control. He has His way 
even above the noise of the storm. Don't miss Exploring the Word with Dr. Alex McFarland weekdays at 3 p.m. Central on AFR or catch up with the podcast at AFR.net. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. My name is Abraham Hamilton III, and this is the Hamilton Minute. At the height of a Holy Spirit outpouring in Samaria, where the gospel was being preached with great power and droves of people were converting to follow Christ, the Lord instructed Philip to leave Samaria and head south to Gaza. Philip didn't know a divine appointment awaited him. Through his ministry to the Ethiopian eunuch, the gospel would spread to Africa. He left the crowd to serve one. I call this step-down faith. It's easy to step up for the attention and applause of the masses. But do we have step-down faith? Listen each weekday from 5 to 6 p.m. Central for The Hamilton Corner with Abraham Hamilton III, public policy analyst for the American Family Association. The ministry of Preborn is the ultimate life support, helping moms in crisis choose life. I definitely would have gone down the wrong road and probably would not have given my son life if they had not been there to support me. From giving me the ultrasound to throwing a baby shower and they went out and they got churches to cover my bills. They helped me through so much. It was just incredible. Preborn centers are the ultimate life support for moms in crisis across America, providing hope, love, and free ultrasounds. He's 10 and he's my little angel. Preborn clinics are the largest providers of free ultrasounds in the United States. Would you join with Preborn in rescuing babies? One ultrasound is just $28, or five ultrasounds are $140. All gifts are tax deductible. To donate, dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250 baby. Or go to preborn.com. This is Frank Affney with the Secure Freedom Minute. It's good news that the Central Intelligence Agency is establishing a new mission center focused on the massive and growing threat posed by the Chinese Communist Party. Such a heightened priority is long overdue, especially in light of the PRC's past successes in discovering and neutralizing U.S. spy networks there. The bad news is that the man ultimately responsible for the CIA's China portfolio is its director, William Burns. In his previous post as president of the Carnegie Endowment in Washington, Mr. Burns presided over that think tank's extensive collaborations with Chinese influence operations successfully used by the CCP to obscure the true nature of the existential danger it poses to America. The question occurs, can the CIA accurately assess and help counter the China threat if its efforts are overseen by a man who has himself gotten it seriously wrong? This is Frank Gaffney. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. All right, Sandy Rios back with you. It is kind of, uh, for all purposes, Columbus Day, although tomorrow is the actual Columbus Day. And, in fact, I want to read, before I go back to Bill here, I just want to read a little bit more of of Christopher Columbus's uh, ship log, which I just find fascinating. He's describing what was happening right before they found, you know, the first bit of land that they discovered. He said, The moon in its third quarter rose in the east shortly before midnight, I estimate we were making about nine knots and had gone 67 and a half miles. Um, then two hours after midnight, the Pinta fired a cannon, my prearranged signal for the sighting of land. 
And then he says, I, I believe that the light I saw earlier was a sign from God and that it was truly the first positive indication of land. Then he goes on and talks about how they stayed, they uh, went to the land and they waited till daylight. And he, then he says, at dawn we saw naked people and I went ashore in the ship's boat armed by, uh, and then he names his compatriots and how they planted the flag and did all their ceremonies. And then he said, no, no sooner had we concluded the formalities of taking possession of the island than people began to come to the beach all as naked as their mothers bore them, and the women also. Although I did not see more than one very young girl, all those that I saw were young people, none of whom over thirty years old. They are very well-built people with handsome bodies and very fine faces, though their appearance is marred somewhat by very broad heads and foreheads, more, more so than I have ever seen in any other race. Their eyes are larger, very pretty. Their skin is the color of Canary Islanders or of sunburned peasants, not, a, not at all black, as would be expected, because we are on the east-west line with Herero and the Canaries. These are tall people, and their legs, with no exception, are quite straight. None of them has a paunch. They are, in fact, well-proportioned. Their hair is not kinky but straight and coarse like horsehair. They wear it short over their eyebrows, but they have a long hank in the back that they never cut. They paint their faces. Others paint their whole bodies, some their eyes or noses. Some are painted black, some white, some red, some are different colors. He talks about the language and how he can't understand it. And then he says, I want the natives to develop a friendly attitude toward us because I know that they are a people who can be made free and converted to our holy faith more by love than by force. He talks about giving them gifts, and then he says, uh, they traded and gave everything they had with goodwill. But it seems to me they have very little and are poor in everything. I warned my men to take nothing from the people without giving something in exchange. And Bill, I know that uh, I'm sorry to read such a long passage. I just think that gives such color to the story. And I think, you know, one of the big issues, of course, is that we've been told that Columbus enslaved or mistreated other natives. And is that is that true? This In this passage, it doesn't seem true, but what is the story on that? Yeah, so uh, he took four voyages. The first, because the Muslims cut off the land route, he's looking for a sea route. The first voyage is he discovers the peaceful Indians, as you mentioned, called the Arawaks. And, uh, again, they traded. Uh, and he was all excited. Uh, he decides to go back and uh, runs aground on Haiti, uh, and he has to leave 40 sailors. And then he has to get uh, on a different ship, and uh, his uh captain of his other ship, uh, there are three ships altogether, uh, tries to make it back to Spain before Columbus. And so he takes off, and Columbus doesn't have a clue where he's at. Of course, he was caught in a storm, so Columbus is the first one back. He's treated like a hero. Uh, he's you know, got some gold and so forth. The king and queen of Spain actually pull up a chair next to theirs uh, by the throne, and uh, it's uh, you know, a big deal. Um, but uh, Columbus is the victim of racial discrimination because he's Genoan. He's not Spanish. And there is a jealous Spanish bishop named Fonseca. And he is furious that the king and queen of Spain gave Columbus the title of Admiral of the Ocean Seas and Governor of all new lands uh, discovered. And he's like, this guy's not Spanish. And so he convinces the king and queen of Spain to saddle Columbus on his second voyage with 17 ships and 2,000 get-rich-quick Spaniards. And Columbus is like, I, I know I'm this close to, to, to running into China and India, and, 
and, and he's trying to design a faster ship and everything, but instead he's got to take these slow ships. So he's got these 2,000 people that he really doesn't want to have, and they land um, on a part of Haiti, and they have a um, uh, settlement called La Isabella, and the uh, sail- the Spaniards begin to get malaria. And they're like, okay, Columbus, you didn't tell us about this. And then a hurricane hits and wipes out their settlement. They have to move it to Santo Domingo. And and then they run into islands seeing human bones cooking in pots and <laughs> human skulls and gnawed leg bones and gnawed ar- arm bones. And they're cannibals. And they're like, Columbus, we thought that this was like, you know, a paradise. And uh, lo and behold, there's a violent tribe uh, called the Caribbean. And they've come up from Columbia, South America area. And they've been you know, island hopping. And they would sodomize and cannibalize the inhabitants. And uh, some of the Spaniards who that were along with Columbus said that they would, you know, uh, have relations with these uh, peaceful Indian women. And when they would bore the babies, they would eat them the same way that you would eat a kid or a goat. And um, and so they're like uh, saying that they don't want to uh, respect Columbus. Columbus tries to do a settlement and it, and leave him with his brother so he can continue his, his exploration. Uh, so he uh, eventually goes back uh, to Spain, leaving his brother in charge. Uh, then he comes back on the third voyage, and now he's caught in the doldrums. He decides to take a, a different route and go closer to the equator and runs into an area where there's weeks and no wind. And you're just sitting still in the middle of the ocean. Later, it's called the horse latitudes because the sailors would you know, say there's not enough water for these horses, they would shove the horses into the ocean. Well, Columbus in the Deldrums prays that if God sends wind, he'll name the first land he sees after the Trinity. And the wind picks up, and the first land he names Trinidad. And uh, it happens to have three peaks as well. He gets back to uh, Hispanola, uh, which is uh, today uh, Haiti, and he um, uh, finds the things a mess. The Spaniards had run off into the mountains, and they're, you know, fooling around with the women, and they're stealing their gold, and Columbus's brother is trying to keep order, but they don't want to pay attention to him because he's Genoan, he's not Spanish, and Columbus pens a letter, and he says, this is not like trying to, you know, settle an island in the Mediterranean, you know, like Corsica or something. Um, this is, you know, this is a, a whole different thing. Long and short of it, the letter is intercepted by Fonseca. He takes it into the king and queen and says, I told you, this Columbus should not have been played, made governor of all new lands discovered. The king and queen decide that they're going to uh, send a replacement governor named Babadilla. And so he comes over, and uh, he is going to put Columbus in chains. And they, they actually went to church first, because, you know, it was back then you had to go to church on Sunday. And and here's the guy that's about to arrest him, Babadilla, and there's Columbus. And so afterwards, uh, nobody would put the chains on Columbus. But they got the cook, and he comes out of the kitchen, and they said, he was smiling as if he was serving a, a meal, you know. And, uh, and so they put Columbus in chains on the ship, send him back to Spain. The captain offers to take the chains off. Columbus says, no, I want the king and queen to see how I'm treated. And he's, like, dragging these chains through the streets of, you know, the Spain. And finally gets into the king and queen's presence. They order the chains off. He tells them his side of the story. And they believe him, but they're not in a hurry to send him back. So he's laid up for a couple of years. And during this time, he writes his Libro de las Profecias, Book of the Prophecies, where he meticulously goes through the Bible and every place where there's a prophecy about taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, to the islands of the sea, uh, people yet unknown will hear the gospel. 
he says that his voyage is helping to fulfill this prophecy. And he even goes into some timelines. He says, you know, that that this particular person, you know, said that the world will end seven centuries after creation. And, um, well, the king and queen finally say, okay, go back on your fourth voyage, but do not go anywhere near Santo Domingo. And hurry up and get out of here uh, before the, the winds of fortune change. And, and so he sails back, and um, this time he's heading toward the Caribbean, and he sees the weather stirring a hurricane. And he remembers but the La Isabella settlement wiped out by a hurricane, and the Europeans had never seen these. And so he gets to Santo Domingo, and he says, look, i got to tell him. So he disobeys, goes into the port, and he tells him this massive storm is going to hit, and they blow him off. And Babadilla is putting all the gold on the ships. Now, the king and queen did honor that a, a percentage of the gold would go to Columbus, and they would you know, melt it and stamp it and so forth. And so Babadilla is busy putting all this gold on, on these ships, 24 ships, and they don't give Columbus even permission to stay in the harbor. And so Columbus rows back to his ship, doesn't even pull the little rowboat out, and he and his other two ships sail as fast as they can. They want to get to the other side of the island for when the hurricane hits, and they're like, you know, tying down. Um, well, the hurricane does hit, and it wipes out uh, this settlement, you know, Santa Domingo area, and uh, and all the ships filled full of gold sink, including the one with Babadilla, wow. and only one ship was on the slowest ship, it was still making its way through the mangroves when the hurricane hit. And, and, it, and when the hurricane passes, it goes back to Spain, not realizing it's the only ship. And guess what? Guess whose gold is on that ship? Columbus's, right? Stamped with Columbus's, you know, this belongs to him. And uh, But Columbus doesn't know this because he's on the other side of the island. The, the hurricane rips the anchors. Uh, he, he and his ships are blown around the Caribbean. Uh, for weeks on end, his son is with him. Uh, one time they see a water spout. It's like a tornado that's coming out of the ocean and it passes between the ship. And the son said Columbus pulled out the Bible, read the passage of Jesus calming the sea, takes out his sword, makes a big cross in the sky, and draws a circle around his fleet. And the, the fleet miraculously is not sucked up in the water spout. Uh, they make it to Panama. And Columbus, by this time, has arthritis. He's going blind because, you know, you're looking at the sun setting every day and on the ocean. And um, and so uh, he, they get off, they build a little, uh, you know, uh, not a fort, but a little palisade type of settlement, and the Indians decide to attack. Uh, Columbus is on the one ship out in the harbor, and uh, one ship gets caught up the river with the tide out, uh, and uh, Columbus is all by himself, and he's like yelling, and of course the Indians are attacking and killing, and um, little did he know he was only 50 miles from the Pacific and the real route to India and China. But um, so he, uh, they have one ship sink and they're in Panama. And it was only like five years ago that some scuba divers found the cannon of that ship of Columbus's that did sink there off Panama. Uh, his other ship was caught up in the river and didn't get out. And then he's got one ship left and it's waterlogged that barnacles are eating through the wood and it's leaking the waters up to the rails and they finally run aground on Jamaica and they're there for a year. Uh, the Indians are going to uh, first be nice and then they're getting tired of these sailors like wanting to run off and fool around with the women 
And they're planning on attacking Columbus and wiping them out. And Columbus, this whole time, has been looking at the stars. He's a navigator and the first one to see the constellations from the Western Hemisphere. But he is such an expert navigator that he accurately predicts a lunar eclipse on February 29th of 1504. And he calls the Indian chiefs to, you know, the sand where the, the boat is and uh, and tells them that they need to continue to be nice to him or he'll pray and God will blot out the moon. And, and you know, he's going back and forth into his cabin, looking out the window, and sure enough, the, the lunar eclipse begins to happen. And this, the moon turns red and then black and the Indians scream. And, and then, the, you know, then, of course, it clears up and, uh, and they are nice to him. Now, uh, Columbus gets his captain Menendez and some Indians to canoe in the open ocean from Jamaica back to Hispanola, Haiti, and uh, finds the replacement replacement governor who's busy fighting the Indians in the jungle. And he's like, uh, they say, well, Columbus is still alive. He's like, he's like, oh, great. I thought we were done with that guy. And uh, he waits months, finally sends a ship to Columbus. But instead of rescuing Columbus, he brings him some supplies and says, I'll come back later. And then finally they rescue Columbus. He goes back to Santo Domingo, uh, which he had named after his father, Dominic, but he named it on the feast of St. Dominic, and so it's sort of a subtle Bill, way to, to name his the, we, the settlement after his dad. Um, we are, and we are, the, we are out of time. time. Can, you, can you wrap up in 30 seconds about Columbus? Yeah. So he makes it back to Spain. Queen Isabella's dead. He sets uh, the, the inheritance in order for his son, and he, and he writes in there that the son should use the inheritance to have uh, ministers of the gospel and minister to the Indians. Columbus is blamed for what three Spaniards did, and uh, there was finally a priest named Bartolome de los Casos that outlaws the enslavement of Native Americans, but that's when some of them said, hey, where can we get more slaves? And they said Africa, and that begins the whole African wow. slave trade. Wow. But, uh, well, but, well, it's an incredible story, and I want to hear more of it. We're out of time, but this Bill Federer has written all about this. You can see now why I love uh, interviewing Bill and uh, Bill we'll have to send them to your website to get the more more of that story but thank you for sharing this story with us on Columbus Day thank you so much Sandy Rios in the morning AFR talk the views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio